Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. Imagination, of course, can open any door, turn the key, and let terror walk right in. That's Truman Capote. This is Jessica McAvoy, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. Welcome to Roll of the Dice, an actual play podcast where we play mini campaigns and one-shots with a rotating cast of players and game masters. Join us for a wide variety of games that follow many different characters on their adventures. Enjoy bite-sized stories that allow you to jump in at any time, with a range of different genres and styles. One episode, you might hear an adventurer fighting a fearsome dragon. The next, a dashing werewolf dressed like a Victorian dandy. This is outside of my himbo category. Bro, bro, you're going in the wrong direction. Come back. Whatever the story, we are queer artists who will always strive to be inclusive. Wow, I contain multitudes. Alright, that is a critical success. Can I stealthily cast my fishing rod? You can certainly try. I'm gonna die here. When you make a mistake, you just gotta double down sometimes. And I think that is now is one of those times. <laughs> Don't forget, follow us on ROTD Pod on Twitter and Roll of the Dice Pod on Tumblr for updates. See you there. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Hello, welcome to our Extra Wicked 2022 Halloween episode. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. These episodes are made possible by our Patreon supporters at the $5 a month and above level. These stories are heard first by our supporters and later compiled into anthology episodes to make sure our authors and voice actors' work is heard by the full audience. We'll be taking our annual post-Halloween break through the end of the year, but if you're a Patreon supporter at the Extra Wicked level... You can expect a fresh extra wicked tale during the hiatus. On that note, a sincere thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. Our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, well, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and I really do rely on this support to help me pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing that you're a part of making this show possible, you can also get fun rewards, like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support even more. You can support us at patreon.com 
forward slash Wicked Library. Also, a big thank you to those of you who took the time to rate the show five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your reviews help others find the show, and we love hearing from you. Now, today we present three dark tales, Midianites, written by Ted Morrissey and told by Addison Peacock, with a score by Nico Viteze. The Starsick, written by Samuel M. Moss and told by Graham Rowett, with a score by Nico Viteze. And finally, It's Your Turn to Wear the Mask, written by Mason Morgan, told by me, and also featuring a score by me. start off with Midianites, written by Ted Morrissey and told by Addison Peacock. Midianites by Ted Morrissey Emma lay beside her husband while he drifted toward sleep. She liked to feel the weight and warmth of his body. Sometimes she would think of their honeymoon months, the first year or so of their marriage, and the things they did the things she did. The recollection even now could crimson her cheeks. When Harry's breathing turned to snoring, Emma would take the candle and make her way downstairs to the daybed in the little room off the kitchen. It was sufficiently comfortable, and if anyone came for her in the night, she could hear their first fretful knocks. More than two decades of midwifing had made her a light sleeper. When her mothers were getting close... Emma would little more than nap through the long, thought-filled nights. This evening, Emma was especially anxious and alert, waiting for Harry to fall asleep. She worried that with the deepening snow, the visitor may not come. He'd been coming faithfully for weeks, and the thought of his not being there, waiting in the yard, unnerved her, just as she'd been unnerved the first time she saw him as she made her candle-lit way to the day room. He appeared to be a man, or the silhouette of one, standing, motionless, watching. She assumed it was a husband or a brother or an uncle who'd come for her. One of her mothers was having trouble, but by the time she put on her coat and went to the porch, he was gone. There was just a darker shadow in the dark yard that may have seemed the silent summoner. Emma called out, inquiring if someone was there. Only the callous wind replied. He became a nightly visitant. Emma didn't bother mentioning him to Harry or her son, Wit, because she knew him and why he haunted the farm. In some respects, he was no different than any anxious father. Harry at last drifted into a deep sleep. Maybe the sound of the snow against the bedroom window had disturbed and delayed him. Emma took the candle and crept from the room. Downstairs, she set the candle on the kitchen table and went to the window to peer into the night yard, strangely lit by the snow 
that so stubbornly fell. At first, her eyes didn't find him. Then, he skulked into view. His new form, a coyote, didn't deceive her. He halted in his usual spot, near the henhouse, and stared at her, finding her instantly, knowingly, at the kitchen window. Their eyes met in satisfied recognition across the snowy yard. He broke the gaze and step-hopped through the deepening snow to the henhouse door. He raised up on his hind legs, suggesting his true form, and challenged the door's latch. Emma was unconcerned about the birds inside. He had no real interest in them. He'd come about the child. She closed her eyes and was instantly half asleep. She was so exhausted she sometimes believed she could sleep standing like a horse in its stall. In the beginning, the Johnsons didn't call on Emma to midwife Peggy's pregnancy, and she believed it was because of the string of deaths. It had been nearly two years since Emma had seen both baby and mother through delivery. Little Liam Goodpath and Hester had been the last. Then unannounced, began the season of death that she still oversaw, like a gardener who suddenly could grow only noxious weeds, only thorny, thumb-pricking roses with no sweet blooms to balance the bloodletting. A midwife lost a child or a mother from time to time. It was inevitable over the course of twenty years. But this menagerie of deaths, in less than a year, was another matter. The losses had stirred a powerful melange of emotions. Sadness, of course. Anger, self-doubt, and worse, the belief that others now doubted her too. Then came the news Peggy Johnson was pregnant, and feeling so poorly her oldest, Sarah, had to take on her mother's role around the house, fixing the meals, cleaning, sewing, tending to her little brothers and sisters. Soon followed the message of silence from the Johnson farm. No request for Emma to see to sickly Mrs. Johnson and her growing baby. The silence confirmed Emma's suspicions. The whole county now saw her as the angel of death. Surely it was just a run of bad luck, a bleak moment in her biography that people would forget when eulogizing her one day, the inevitable downturn the law of averages demanded. It helped her confidence when Roberta Fry called on Emma regarding her pregnancy, but still... The silence from the Johnsons warranted an explanation, and the threat of deaths was the most obvious. It had been raining for days, three solid days of grey skies and three black nights with neither moon nor stars. Ham and beans were simmering on the stove, and Emma was about to call Harry and Wit to supper when there was a knock on the kitchen door. Emma's first thought was Roberta Fry, who was only halfway along a pregnancy that was sure to be troubled, given Roberta's age and her history. Emma opened the door, expecting to see Bobby Fry, Roberta's oldest, a good boy, but slow. Instead, it was a girl, a young girl, standing in the lamplight that escaped the kitchen. At first, for a moment, Emma believed it was Elizabeth, Roberta's daughter, until the girl pulled back her sopping hood, and it wasn't a fry at all. It was Rebecca Johnson, the middle daughter. Emma brought her indoors, doing the arithmetic. 
Rebecca was nine years old, and she'd walked the more than three miles in the dark and rain. Her water-soaked skirt was embroidered in mud. Still, Emma couldn't help feeling a ribbon of relief. It must be that Mrs. Johnson was reaching out for assistance with her pregnancy after all, or the sudden sad conclusion of it. Emma changed clothes quickly while Wit harnessed the horses. Emma and Rebecca huddled beneath blankets and an oilcloth in the back of the wagon while Wit navigated the barely passable roads. Emma and the girl didn't speak. Emma occupied her mind with the relief she felt. With two pregnant women in her care, it was her chance for redemption. Both pregnancies would be a trial, but that would make her successes even sweeter. The wagon rocked from side to side and frequently slowed almost to a stop. Each time, Emma thought that was it. They were stuck in a swampy stretch. But Wit and the horses inched the rig ever forward, and at last they came to the Johnson farm. Emma and the girl rushed inside, where a lantern watched for them from the kitchen door. Emma expected it to be Sarah, not yet sixteen. Indoors came the first surprise. It was Peggy Johnson who held the lantern in a shaking hand. She was haggard, to be sure, but not pregnant. She took Emma's wet coat and hat, then led her upstairs. Hardly a word had been spoken. None was needed, because Emma inferred the most fundamental fact. Sarah wasn't homebound because she was helping her expectant mother. Rather, unmarried Sarah was the one with child. How precisely that came to be was immaterial in the moment. Sarah, fair-haired and sapphire-eyed, was a favorite of wits, Emma could tell, and most of the boys, especially Billy Holcomb, who'd been courting Sarah for a while, since before the Harvest Festival. It was Billy who came instantly to mind once Emma understood the true state of affairs. Sarah was in bed, barely recognizable in her exhaustion and discomfort. Emma had brought with her a handkerchief of turkey-tail fungus, the scent of which calmed a mother's nausea. She placed the folded hanky under Sarah's pillow and began her assessment, asking the usual questions as she pulled back the covers and carefully lifted Sarah's sleeping frock to expose her swollen belly, the belly that would essentially be another being in her care for the next few months, almost separate from Sarah herself. Emma breathed into her hands to warm them before touching Sarah and sensing the child inside. The baby, who couldn't be much bigger than a kitten at this point, caused the surface of Sarah's smooth belly to roil left, then right, up, then back, plainly visible even in the poor candlelight. Emma was thinking she'd not seen such a thing as she placed her palms on Sarah's stomach. The tiny soul thrashed about as if Sarah's young womb was a cell from which he needed desperately to escape. Emma had never felt such anger, such violence in a child, such impatience for the world. Sarah winced and sweated, even though the room was chilly. She was still months from delivery, and her bedding was spotted with blood. Rain attacked Sarah's bedroom window in hellish, headstrong torrents. Emma looked up at Peggy, whose hair fell in limp strands across her creased face. She needn't explain. Sarah's pregnancy had resulted from violation. Emma could feel the child's desire for vengeance. It was the family's secret, and now Emma, by necessity, by destiny, 
had been brought into the circle of deceit. On their way home, Wit and Emma sat in silence. The rain had stopped, and stars shone here and there in broken patches. No moon, not even a brittle sliver was in sight. The following night, the visitations began. Emma opened her eyes, and the thief was gone. The henhouse latch had held, and Emma wanted to read it as a good omen, but what did good signify in this situation? Emma listened for sounds in the house, anything to suggest that Harry or Wit was awake. She heard only the wind and the snow clicking against the windows. She took a shawl from the back of a chair and wrapped it around her shoulders. The kitchen's hearth fire had burned low, its field stones barely warm to the touch. Then Emma gripped the metal knob of the door next to the stove. The knob was as cold and smooth as a pump handle. Down there, in the root cellar, they were waiting. She held the lantern in one hand and gathered her shawl tight with the other, not bothering with the railing. Her slippers were soft and quiet and careful on the steps. She reached the dirt floor. The cellar's ceiling was tall enough that she could stand without stooping, though the urge remained. The earthy smells of raw vegetables, paraffin, and pine sprigs enveloped her like a mist. It seemed, too, there was the scent of afterbirth, of placenta, and blood as black as iron. They were here. They were always here, their shapes shimmering more than moving in the gloom. The children remained, just beyond the touch of Emma's lantern. The snow light from the small head-high windows fringed the shadow figures with indigo tonight, as if outlined in ice. The storm didn't stop him, said Emma. He's in the yard. Emma's whispered words fell to the floor like wads of scratchy wool. The children spoke in unison, of one voice. All fathers are anxious for the arrival of their sons. Why should he be any different? Emma seemed to hear them in her head, like they poured their words directly into her ear, just as the Lord was said to have touched the virgin. I think he grows impatient. Tonight he was a coyote trying to thieve from the henhouse. He wonders what you will do, assist the child into the world or not, help him to fulfill the prophecy or not, steal his child from him, just as he pantomimed burgling the henhouse. Emma quoted, he shall come upon a storm of chaos, and he shall lead all astray from Christ's flock, even the heartily faithful. They shall be as lambs, rent by a wolf. Emma looked at the cellar window, on the leeward side of the house, but still neatly covered by snow. The children moved like shadows on a wall, wavering with a candle's draft-driven flame. Will you help bring his child into the world? They said. The world he is to destroy. Bring him living into the world you delivered us into dead. I did all I could for you. You must believe that. Emma fingertipped a teardrop from her cheek. I loved you all. Near as much as your mother's, I swear to you. I did all I could. You love his child then too? Of course I must. He has no say in his nature. None of us do. Emma hesitated with her words. He has returned me to my faith. The faith you all bled away, death by death. 
her voice cracked. She'd been wanting for a long while to say what she said. She added quickly, It's not your fault, of course. I just couldn't understand why the Jesus on the Mount God would take you and leave in your place so much pain. The only sensible thing was, he would not. He must be a mere story, as false as the brother and sister who dropped breadcrumbs in the forest, and the old woman in the shoe, and the woebegone girl in the red coat. Emma groped for the right word. But if his... If his antithesis is real, and surely he is, then God must be too. There cannot be one without the other. She glanced again at the cellar window, and it seemed a shadow had fallen across it, as if the creature who had challenged the henhouse latch was now just there, listening at the casement. Emma heard footsteps overhead. She thought for a moment it was he, boldly come inside like the king's visitation to the mad woman of Endor, but then recognized the rhythm of wit's gate. The children, wary, had receded further into the cellar's shadows. They would speak no more tonight. Emma took a jar from a shelf, peaches, perhaps, or candied apples, and returned upstairs, the lantern before her. Wit was at the kitchen's south window. He looked at her when she emerged from the cellar, but said nothing. Saying nothing had always been his way. Emma could go days without hearing her son's voice. Others read Wit's taciturnity as slowness, even a defect. His mother knew otherwise. Wit considered the world carefully and preferred the company of his books, filled with words no one in a hundred miles could read except apparently Wit. The collection of Jesuit school texts had been in the family for years, but no one before Wit had paid them any attention. He'd taught himself the languages, which to Emma were unfathomable squiggles and jots. Perhaps Whitaker had made sense of them long ago. Perhaps it was a divinely guided act, a miracle gone unrecorded. When it came to scripture, Emma felt like she'd lost the ability to understand at that deeper level. Or perhaps she never had, had only assumed so, without ever articulating the meanings on her own, just accepting Pastor Wilson's interpretations, or Harry's, and jaybirding them back to herself. She suspected her son may understand more, may comprehend in a unique way, if she could only speak to him about such subjects. But his quiet demeanor would always suppress her desire to talk. Over time, Emma began to think of Wit's quiet as the quiet of all the children she couldn't have. After Wit, she and Harry tried again and again, and time and again her husband's seed stirred life in her, but the babies would always leave her in a painful rush of blood, on three occasions to be fished from the privy's filth. She read her Bible, searching for answers, concentrating on the barren women, but found nothing of worth. Rachel resolved her dilemma by having her husband lie with a maidservant, who then carried the child in Rachel's stead. It was preposterous to imagine Harry set up with some young girl in the village. Emma pictured his awkwardness and embarrassment. He would perish from shame before managing anything useful. She finally decided it was meant to be that Wit, in his cocoon of quiet would be her only child, and she accepted his silent way as an emblem of the silences of all her lost children. He was still watching out the window, his broad back to her. Did he see the coyote too? Did he recognize him? Or was Wit only considering the snow, calculating its depth, wondering how long the storm would last? 
Emma felt certain her son could shed light on the apocalypse of John. Surely the language of the priests must cast the prophecy in a manner different from the one she'd always known. Some of its meaning must have fallen away in translation, even replaced by another. She parted her lips, searching for the words to begin. Wit turned. He'd been drinking a glass of milk. He finished it in a single swallow and set the glass in the sink. His expression said goodnight as he headed off to his room upstairs. Emma set the jar of preserves on the table next to the candle. Candied apple read her slanting script in the saffron light. She went again to the window and pulled back the curtain. There was something about the frost on the glass that aged Emma's reflection beyond her forty years to the age her mother had been at the end. Or rather, the shell of her mother, a husk, because her mother had retreated from her physical body long before. Her love of moonlight, her favorite hymns, the folk remedies that kept her family safe, the recipes she'd passed to her, the names of relatives decades in their graves, the pattern for making her dolly's dresses, the feeling of peacefulness brought by spring rains. All gone, emptied out, drained away by the end. Now here mother was again, hoary-templed, hollow-cheeked, watchful at the window. Emma wondered if this image was a premonition. Would she become a kind of matriarch? A vessel whose lush fruit had turned to a flinty stone? Or more like a sibyl, whose blind fingers could read the tapestries of time as she whispered the future in mad musings? Nothing was certain, except that she must find again the magic of life. She must recapture the miracle of delivering both mother and baby alive through the gauntlet of birth. Otherwise, Emma would surely become what people said, the angel of death. Perhaps had already become death's mistress, death's whore. In her windowpane portrait... Something about the roof line of the henhouse and its irregular shingles captured in the queer snow light suggested in Emma's image that she was wearing a crown. If she shifted her weight a bit to the left, yes, a perfect ghostly crown appeared on her graying head. Was the coronation presentiment? If she successfully delivered the Antichrist child into the world, would she be elevated? No, descended to a new role, something like the Devil's Consort, Queen of the Doomed. Emma reached up, but of course only her apparition could touch the unholy crown. In attempting to remove it, she managed to primp it into a more pleasing angle. She stepped away from the window and let the curtain fall. Her reflection was gone. The Ghost Queen vanished, yet she felt the weight of the crown still pressing down next up we have The Starsick written by Samuel M. Moss and told by Graham Rowett The Starsick by Samuel M. Moss. Two girls were walking together one night. One counted the stars and was struck dead instantly. The other, who did not count them, got home safely. 
recorded in 1902 from a Berkshire couple, Mr. and Mrs. Matthews. There's something that happened in Liberty, Arizona, that not a lot of people talk about. This happened in the early 70s, and I know it happened because I was living in Liberty at the time. I was 19 or 20. I'd graduated from high school and gone into trucking, which is what I've done ever since. Most of the guys my age had been drafted and were over in Southeast Asia, either alive or dead. I'm not anti-war. It was about the farthest thing from a hippie you could find, but I'm glad I never got called up to fight. At that time, I would mostly pick up loads of furniture in Fresno, then run them through Arizona and Texas to a distribution center in Lafayette, Louisiana. There I'd pick up a load of cattle feed and run it back to Dallas, and then Flagstaff. I could do a run in under 36 hours most times. I didn't get into pills like the other guys. I was just young and didn't sleep much. It paid well, and because I was so fast, I had a lot of time off in Liberty. I hadn't met Kathy yet, and Aaron was still a ways out, so I spent a lot of time with my parents. The whole thing happened in the late spring or early summer. There was some big strike at the Harrison Furniture Factory. All my regular hauling contracts were suspended, so I didn't have a whole lot going on. Back then, when I didn't have anything going on, I generally sat down to drinking and doing a bit more of it than I should have. There were a few bars in Liberty, and I'd visit them from time to time, but it wasn't really my thing. The guys there were all real career drunks, and I decided pretty early on that I didn't want to end up like that at all. So I'd go out fishing or swimming and have a few beers, then sleep them off in the back of my Bronco and drive home the next morning. I decided to go out on a fishing trip at Lake Mitri down there on some BLM land just north of Yuma. It was just me in the back of my truck with a mattress and a cooler full of Jimmy Dean sausage and Milwaukee's best. But by the second night, bugs got so bad I couldn't sleep, so I just went on home early. Since I was used to driving nights, I just left around 8 or 9 and got into Liberty around midnight. At that time, coming into town from the south, he had to pass through the MZ ranch. As I was driving through... I looked out and saw all these shapes in the darkness. I knew they weren't cows, but since they weren't moving or lit up, I just figured they were fence posts about to go in or something. I definitely didn't think that they were people. Or children, I guess. So I just kept on driving. The next day I went down to Elmer's for a cup of coffee and a sandwich. I sat down at the counter and this fellow I knew... Another trucker, a bit older than me, named Jody, came and sat down. He said hello, and we got to visiting. He seemed a bit upset, and I asked him what was wrong. Damn Linda went and snuck out with some other kids last night. Linda was his kid. Must have been about ten then. Now, it wasn't uncommon at that time for kids to go out and go fishing or hunting or just walking around in the hills. We all did it as kids. And when you left, your mom made sure you had a sandwich and a hat, and she told you she loved you, and that was about it. Not like today. But that was boys, mostly. And if you were going to camp out for the night, you told your parents where you'd be. For a girl that young to be out at night, it was just sort of strange. Especially Linda. 
I'd only met her once or twice, but she was just a quiet, sort of bookish girl. Not the kind that would be running off to drink or anything like that. I asked Jody where she'd gotten off to. Bunch of kids there at the MZ Ranch. Weren't even doing anything. No fire or anything. Just standing there. Edgar Del Morrow noticed his boy was missing and called down to the sheriff's. Well, Bill and Edgar went out looking for him and found the whole group. About one in the morning, Edgar's boy Pete and Linda and about ten other kids were standing just off the road in the MZ Ranch. Just standing there in their nightshirts and pajamas. By the time Bill and Edgar found him, the kids must have been there for three or four hours. That's when I realized that it was those kids I saw standing off the road. And it made me feel real strange. I didn't know what to make of it. I'd asked Jody what he thought was going on. Well, at first they thought that they were having a drug party, or on dope or something. But they didn't find anything on them, so they just brought them home. Plus, kids that young aren't getting into dope. At least I hope not. I tell you, I nearly killed Linda. But she was so quiet and dazed, I wasn't so much mad as confused. I'll admit it even spooked me a bit. When I asked her what she was doing out there, and she just said... Looking at the star, Dad. I asked her what star, but she was acting like she was waking up from a dream and didn't have much to say about it. I got her in bed and she just fell asleep. I left Elmer's, and as I was walking to my car, I heard some kind of yelling. I looked over and I saw, out there on the corner of Main and Lincoln, in front of where the Spectre's department store was at the time, this kid standing there, jaw open just staring up at the sky, and his mother there hollering at him, calling him all sorts of names, telling him to get in the car and that she was going to just leave him there and all that. I looked up to the sky to see if he was watching a plane or a cloud or what, but there was nothing there, just the bare morning sky and nothing else. Then all of a sudden, the kid let out this cry, like a wail. The sound of it, I couldn't believe a kid could make a sound like that. Like he just heard his whole family had died. Everyone else on the street stopped what they were doing and looked over. Then the kid fell to the ground, on all fours. He was looking up, though, up at the sky, just off over the horizon at whatever was there. I thought for a moment that the kid was ill, like in the head. Then that lady just picked her kid up, fireman-style, and hauled him into her car, and that was when I realized who she was. Esther Hollis, who was friends with my mother through their embroidery club, and her boy Chuck. I'd met Chuck before, and he was a good kid. That rare kind of kid with charisma and drive, like he was already an adult. That afternoon, I went to my parents' house for dinner. My father was out working, but my mother was home. My grandmother, my father's mother, lived there with them, and she was there too that afternoon. We talked a bit about my fishing trip, the strike, and some news from around town when I mentioned those kids in the field. Neither my mother nor my grandmother had heard of it, so I told them what I had heard from Jody. I told them about the kids, and how I had driven past those kids the night before, but couldn't see them for the dark and how they'd been all dazed and acting strange. The whole time, my mother and my grandmother were listening real close. When I finished, my mother said, 
Well, they better not do it again. They spooked those cows and they might get kicked. Then she went back to cleaning the dishes. But my grandmother sort of mulled it over for a minute. Then she said, in that sort of quiet voice of hers, I've heard it before. And she nodded. My mother didn't say anything. My mother might not have heard her, but my grandmother sometimes talked about things my mother didn't understand or didn't want to hear. She would ignore her then, and may have been ignoring her there as well. Now, about my grandmother. She was in her 70s then, and frail, but still sharp as a tack. She was the kind of smart that was real quiet most of the time, but then when everyone else would stop talking, she would say something real soft and just at the right time, something that no one else had thought of. She never talked about her life much, and never about her life before she'd come to this country. All I knew was she'd come from Europe somewhere, and she had a thick accent. She understood everything and spoke good English, but I always had the sense that there were things going on inside her head that she had trouble putting into words. I'd always figured she was German, but a few years after my grandmother died, my mother told me she had been born in Russia and fled to this country because she was Jewish. I guess in some places that heritage would be a liability, so she kept mum about it her whole life. How she ended up in Liberty, Arizona and met my grandfather a third-generation Arizonan ranch hand turned barkeep, I still don't fully understand. I asked her what she meant. She said, I heard about this before, when I was younger. They are starsick. They've seen a star in the sky that only they can see. They watch it, and they get a kind of sick. I still didn't understand. I asked my grandmother what sort of star it was, a constellation or a shooting star or something else. No, no shooting star, she said, thinking for a minute. Like a star, but different. Like a black star. And they watch it for a long time. Only in certain places it happens. It's a bad thing. These children... She shook her head. This was the thing about my grandmother. When she wanted to talk, she would talk. But when she wanted to stay quiet, there wasn't a whole lot you could do to get her to talk. So I just left it. Talking with a few other folks in the coming days, it seemed like people just wanted to forget this whole thing had happened. Maybe it was because I didn't have anything going on at the time, but it really stuck with me. Over the next few days, a heat wave came through, pretty early and unexpected. Usually with the dry heat, you can at least leave a window open and sleep under the breeze and you're fine. But this was a wet, stagnant heat that sat in the valley. It doesn't happen very often, and when it does, everyone gets miserable. Like I said, I didn't need a whole lot of sleep back then, but it was hard for me to sleep if things weren't perfect. Those first few nights, I just lay in bed in my skivvies on top of my sheets, listening to country radio and wondering about those kids. It wasn't a bad way to be, but I got bored of it. Since it was cooler outside, at least a little bit, I took to going for walks, sitting in the Veterans Memorial Park with a thermos of beer and the quiet. One of those nights I was out, I set up on this dock at a municipal holding pond we called Liberty Lake. 
used to be able to fish and swim in it before it got all filled up with nitrates. It was damn hot that night, and I had my feet in the water to help out. I remember I was drinking from my thermos, and I heard this rustling back near the pullout. I didn't know if it was a coyote or a loose cow or a cop or what, so I hid my thermos. When I turned, I saw it was just someone walking down the road. I think I said hello and waved, but they didn't say anything or even look at me, really. It came to me, too, after a second, that it was a kid that had gone by. It seemed a little strange. Then I remembered what had happened that weekend before, and I got up to follow them. I was in such a hurry that I left my shoes behind. I might have been a bit drunk, too. When I came up behind him on the road, I saw he was just in a pair of pajama pants, no shoes or socks on. He was walking slowly, sort of staring off into the sky. I came up behind him and said hello again, but he didn't turn to face me. I came up next to him and asked him what he was looking at and where he was going. He still didn't say anything. We came around a bend then, where the road comes along the pond and opens up, and I saw what he was looking at. I'll do my best to explain what I saw, but you have to understand that, while I think about it often, I haven't ever told anyone. It's hard to tell the difference between what I saw, what I thought I saw, and what I've dreamt I saw in the intervening years. The kid had stopped in the middle of the road about five yards ahead of me, just standing there, staring at it. I came up behind him and noticed that on both sides of the road there were another twenty or thirty kids just standing there, silent, just like when I'd seen them a few days ago. They were so quiet I didn't realize they were there until I was right in the middle of them. The first thing that struck me was that what I was seeing wasn't up in the sky, that it was no plane or cloud, but two... I wouldn't say it looked like a star. More like a place in the sky that was blacker than the rest. What really struck me was that it was hard to judge how far away it was. It seemed far away, further out than the stars, but also that it might have been right in front of us. This thing seemed pretty faint, but I think those kids could see it better than I could. It must have been there all the time, day and night but I guess I could only see it when it was dark out. I looked at it for a good 30 seconds, just trying to figure out what I was looking at before things really clicked into place. It was like I was hearing some weak, shortwave signal from Russia or something, but different. There were no words or music or anything, just this faint hissing. But it wasn't just a sound. It was a feeling like the hissing was there inside of me somewhere. I've heard since then that the Eskimos say they can hear the northern lights, and I imagine that this is like what they hear. And I've tried to remember ever since what I was feeling at the time. I think any rational person would have been afraid, or maybe thought it something beautiful, or had something. But looking back, it was like all the thought and feeling had been sucked out of me. I wasn't afraid or in awe or anything at all, really. A little curious, I guess, but not much else. And that might have been the strangest thing. There aren't a lot of times in your life when you feel absolutely nothing, where that part of you falls silent. 
looking back, that's what frightens me the most. To have that part of you squashed down to nothing. Those kids, too. I figure they had it a lot worse than I did. Looking around at them, it was like everything in them had been pulled out. That they were suddenly empty inside. I heard a car coming then, and I remember I turned. It was Bill Evans with the Sheriff's Department. He pulled out his flashlight and asked me what was going on. When he spoke, it was like the words went into me and had to worm around for a bit through the static and everything before they really hit home. I think he asked me one or two more times before I just told him that the kids were all here and they were in trouble. Bill radioed back, and a few minutes later a few cops and some of the parents showed up. One or two of the mothers were crying, but the others seemed jaded and numb, as if they'd expected it. None of those kids stopped watching the sky, even after their parents showed up. I had to watch as some of those kids got thrown into their parents' cars, same as Chuck. One kid got roughed up pretty bad by his dad. The cops just turned away. After all the kids got taken away by their parents, Bill gave me a ride home. Bill and I had always been friendly, but he didn't say much during that drive, and Bill never did talk to me much after that night. Even though he never said anything, I think he got a little suspicious about seeing me there with all those kids. Over the next few days, there was this story came out that I had found those kids, and some people got it in their heads that I'd saved them. Jose Gutierrez, who ran the Sinclair, came up and thanked me personally. I didn't have the heart to tell him otherwise. I don't know what I could have saved them from. I didn't do anything. Because then... Those kids started dying. It happened so fast. The strike ended, work picked up again, and I was on the road a lot when it all happened. I've looked up the official statistics since. It was 35 dead in two weeks. And this for a town of 800. The story in the newspapers had it as a measles outbreak brought on by the heat wave, but I've done little digging. Those medical reports and the few autopsies they did. None of those kids had any symptoms of measles. Of course, the later reports had the measles symptoms written in, but I've no doubt in my mind that those reports were made up. The symptoms put in after the fact to keep people from getting hysterical. You can tell because each report is exactly the same, like they just copied the symptoms down onto each chart from some list. Liberty never quite recovered after that. You see this in a lot of small towns these days, where the kids grow up and move to the city and don't come home, but there are always the few who stick around and take care of the old folks and have more babies. But the folks who lost kids didn't see any point in having more, and the folks with babies got out of Dodge before they could be taken too. Liberty lost a whole generation. The starsick generation. I got out of Liberty around then too and couldn't get it in myself to go back for a long time. About ten years ago, I went back to Liberty. I had to. This was when Aaron was at his worst, and we had all his legal stuff to pay off, so we needed money pretty bad. I went back to finish up the sale of my family's place. No one had lived in it for a long time, and I'll be honest with you, it was in a bad way. 
I can count on one hand the number of times I've cried since I turned 15, and that was one of them, coming into that house. My mother hadn't done so well in her last few years, and I hadn't been around to look after her. When she went into a home, the house sat derelict for a while, all her stuff piled up everywhere, just moldering. All the windows had been busted out, and some coyotes or something had broken in and formed a den in the living room. About half of the money that I got from the sale just went into recouping the cost to clean it out. I spent one morning hauling out two dozen broken wingback chairs covered in mouse shit and mildew that I guess my mother thought she was going to reupholster and sell. Around noon, I went downtown to get a bite to eat at where Elmer's used to be. There was this real scruffy guy sitting in a corner booth, drinking a cup of coffee. He had an old windbreaker on and was sort of scarred up and dirty. I had to look for a minute before I realized it was Chuck Hollis, that kid that I'd seen break down on the sidewalk that day way back. It took me a while to muster up the courage to say hello. It took him a minute to remember who I was, but when I told him that our mothers were friends, he seemed to get it. I didn't want to beat around the bush, so I asked him straight out what had happened that spring with those starsick kids, what he remembered, what he had seen. He nodded and furrowed his brow. Part of me figured, just from the way he looked, from the way he was dressed, that he was going to come out with some crazy nonsense, that he would just start spewing gibberish or something. But when he spoke, he spoke real calm and clear. You saw it too? He asked. I shrugged. I don't know what I saw. I don't know if I saw anything or not. He smiled then, real soft. If you've seen, then what I'll tell you will make sense. Because when I say this to folks who haven't seen it, they get confused, or mad, or just won't listen. It's something I've taken a long time to learn, but I wouldn't have learned it if we hadn't seen what we saw. What you have to understand, first and foremost, is that we live like rodents in the floorboards of the universe. We scurry around and build our nests and squirrel away some crumbs from here and there. We have our babies and tend to them and believe that our cramped, dusty little world is all there is to see and know. We can be content in this knowledge, but every now and then we hear the footsteps above us, we shudder and fly and hide away in our deepest holes, because, you know, the masters of the house are always there, going about their business, business which runs far outside our scope. Well, every now and then, some little hole opens up in the floorboards, and sometimes those masters of the house peek through and look in on us. You live in this world long enough, and you learn to ignore the sounds of the footsteps, and you learn not to look right at those holes. But if you haven't learned yet, like all us kids, you're like a little mouse staring, frozen, into the vast space of the house. You see all sorts of things you don't have words for. Rapturous things. Horrible. Horrible. You see where those crumbs fall in from, and the size of those feet that make the floorboards creak. Captivated, you get a true sense of the scope 
of being. You have to understand that those kids didn't just die. What we saw, the knowledge we all received, wasn't liberating. We had a glimpse above the floorboards. He pointed up through the ceiling to the sky. When you look up there, you see an endless expanse of darkness. What we learned to see was that this endless expanse is but just the flaking paint on the insides of the bars of a tiny, tiny cage. We saw that it's only a matter of time before those floorboards get ripped up, that the doors of our cell are flung open and were pushed out into the cold like so many paltry pests. We learned the end game, and the ones that died made the simple decision that life as a rat was not a life worth living. So they curled up in the corner and made the right choice. You better believe I was taken aback by what Chuck said. Then I asked him why. If what he said was true, he alone had stayed. He smiled. You know, I've always been the kind that liked to see the insides. When I was a kid, everyone thought I was some golden boy. That I was going to be a doctor or a senator or something. But you better believe I wasn't spending my nights at home learning Latin and all that money I raised for the Shriners wasn't helping no lame kids. No, I was out cutting open cats and picking through roadkill. Setting fires out in Pasco County to see what color flames came up. Then he leaned over the table. Ever since those masters of the house peeked in, I realized something. I realized that if I stuck around long enough, I'd see the show end. The end to the best show in town. I'd get to see the insides of everything. For years, I've been looking for the best seat in the house, and I don't know why it took me so long. I found it. Chuck tapped the top of the table and smiled at me with a handful of yellowed teeth. Right here. That was about the time I was done with Chuck. Since that happened, I've lost a lot. I lost Kathy, and I lost Aaron, too. Kathy, I couldn't help, but I can't shake the thought that I could have done more for my boy. Late last year, my sciatica got so bad I had to stop trucking, so you can imagine I have a lot of time to think about things. I've been thinking a lot about what happened in Liberty and what Chuck told me, and while I don't want to believe that what he said is true, there's something within me, something I've been pushing down for a long time, that knows that it is. You can come to a point in your life, I guess, where everything seems to fade away, where you feel like you're floating. It just feels like I've seen everything there is to see, and I've done everything there is to do, and I'm ready for everything to be done. Like a little rodent hiding under some floorboards, running here and there, only to get covered in dust and cobwebs. So I made a decision recently. I got out of my lease and sold my stuff. I decided I'm going back to Liberty somewhere, out in the desert there, and I'm going to bring a sleep sack and some water and a camp stove. I'm going to find some old ranch building far off the road, 
and I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to listen. I mean, I'm really going to listen, in the way that we never really do. And I'm going to see if I can hear those floorboards creaking. Going to see if I can hear the nails coming up. And then I'm going to look off into the horizon. Really look hard off into the night sky and see if I can find something. Anything. Looking back. Finishing up our Halloween celebration episode... We have It's Your Turn to Wear the Mask, written by Mason Morgan and told by me. It's Your Turn to Wear the Mask, by Mason Morgan. Tonight, I decide to look. I'm gripping the revolver, slicked in sweat, as I crawl to the window. There's someone outside watching me. A body with gangly arms and bloated extremities. A head too big for its shoulders. Its face frozen in a contorted grin. It's saying something, but I can't make it out. The voice is muffled beneath the thing's unmoving face. It sounds like a threat. Come here. I imagine it saying, it's your turn to wear the mask. But when I gather the courage to peek my head above the windowsill, there's nothing there. Just my own pale, translucent reflection. Despite this, anxiety remains lodged in my chest. Despite what I can see, what I can hear, a part of me thinks I am being watched knows I am being watched. Rain patters against the glass. I resign myself to staying awake. There will be no more sleep tonight. This happens more nights than I'd care to admit. Those unblinking eyes, those inflated limbs. It watches from beyond the window, or inside the closet or wherever I decide to lay my head and pray for sleep. No matter where I go, there it is. In the motel room, I hear it giggle behind the shower curtain. In the park, I watch its shadow dance with the moonlight. In the sanctity of my home, it violates everything I once deemed safe. I don't have the full memory. The images come in patches my hands gliding along the waiting rail, its textured paint rough against my fingertips. A voice I don't recognize saying something I can't remember. Waves of people on their way or coming back. And somewhere along the line, my hand loses contact with my mother's. I become adrift in the sea of bodies. There's a shuffle of hands and faces but one of them is the face. What I can never decipher. Why me? Was it opportunity, or was it something else? Back then, I didn't know to fear it. It was simple, cartoonish. 
the plush smile of a theme park mascot, the face of the park's creator blown out of proportion, stretched smile, wide eyes, an oversized cowboy hat, something meant to charm the kids, to summon smiles and laughter. What I didn't understand was, there was someone inside. It said, follow me. It said, you can trust me. The hardest part of having a closet near your bed is deciding to leave it open or closed when you sleep. This is necessity. This is a deliberate choice. I struggle with it every night. If I choose to leave it open, I expose myself immediately to those who watch from it. I make myself vulnerable, incapacitated. The moment I close my eyes, they have control. But the opposite, closing the door, may be worse. I never know if it's empty or not. The safety the barrier of the door provides is two-faced. It hides me, but it hides them too. If I want to know for sure, I have to go to the door and open it. I have to go to the closet door and stop breathing long enough to twist the handle and pull. I have to bring myself to the point of fear. I have to go down into the basement or investigate the abandoned house or pull open the curtain or check under the bed or peek my head above the windowsill. All of these things we know we shouldn't do because of the two, of knowing and not knowing, one is worse. But there's a third thing they leave out, the third option, the worst of them all, knowing and not seeing. When the conviction overrules the evidence, when the hairs on your neck stand straight up and the biology formed through time screams, there is someone behind you. But you look, and no one's there. You look again. The calm never comes. You look again. The hairs never settle, and it dawns on you as it has me. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. Some things, the more you try to explain them, the less sense they make. It's everywhere. How the length of a second is relative. How there are infinite numbers between zero and one. Some things just are, despite explanation. I know how it sounds. I'll try to keep it simple. In my memory, there's a room. It's full of the same face, rows of mascot costumes, lifeless, unmoving. I remember thinking they were all dead. Then I'm in another room with more people. The mascot who's been leading me gives me to the other people, like I'm a package being delivered, property exchanging hands. I know this is a long time ago. But memories exist in the present. It's here with me now. I can feel it like needles in my spine. 
those other people whose faces are blurs, take me to yet another room. This one with a strange enclosure in the center. The whole room is a big circle. They bring me to the center of the center and put me in a chair, strap me to a chair. The men in that room, all of them wore suits. Not hazmat or isolation. Business suits with ties. One of them had a cowboy hat on, just like the mascot. I remember that vividly. The cowboy hat. They use words, but I don't hear them. They point at me, then at the mascot. It comes closer and stands over me. That huge face. It reaches for its head and begins to take it off. In this moment, I feel the terror that will haunt me the rest of my life. The unveiling. The point of fear. But then, I can't remember. I remember the terror, the buildup, but the climax never arrives. I'm left perpetually hanging adrift in the air, doomed to ruminate for years to come. The man with the hat smiles at me and points to the room full of costumes. Right now, thinking back, I don't know if he said something to me. Maybe what's heard doesn't extend as far back as what's felt. Maybe it's just that I'm forgetting. It was a long time ago. It's been a long, long time. But what I feel is this. The costumes in that other room. Those rows of mascot heads and bodies. They belong to me. Or rather, I belong to them. Next thing I know, I'm back with my mother. I'm holding her hand. For some reason, I'm not scared. I'm not crying. Instead, I feel as if pulled from a dream. As if lifting from a daze. Like coming out of surgery. A day at the dentist. She doesn't seem upset that I was gone. In fact, it doesn't seem like I was gone at all. There's ice cream in my hand. The wind is sweeping across my face, my hair. I have to shield my eyes from the sun. Part of me wants to believe it's a falsehood, or that it was part of some ride I was too young to comprehend. A big part of me. Most of me, really. That would make this all so much easier. But I can't. Because of what I saw next. I know what I saw. I thought about it for decades. I haven't been able to think of anything else. I'm thinking about it now. I see a man walking in the other direction, coming my way. In each hand, he's holding the hand of a little boy. I'm caught up looking at the man's suit. It looks like the one I'd seen in the room. They pass on the left. And when they do... I notice the boys for the first time. They both look the same, like twins or copies. They look familiar, strikingly familiar. It takes a moment to register. My mother is saying something, pointing at some attraction. 
the face. The face on those boys, it's the same one I see in the mirror. The face in the closet, inside the costume. It's my face. It's me. Tonight, thinking through everything, trying to put the pieces together again for the millionth time, I can't eat. My fingers won't stop shaking. There's a layer of dread over my apartment, over my life, a constant reminder that ultimately, I cannot tell if I am real, if I am the original, or if I am one of the copies. And if I am real, isn't that worse? That I can't tell? What would the others have to say about that? Surely they would be jealous of my supposed freedom. I know what I would want if I were one of the copies. I'd want the life I thought was my own. I'd want to creep into my house one night, hide in the closet, or outside the window and wait for the perfect moment. I would disrobe my costume, sneak over to the real me, and stuff him inside it. I would replace him. I would take my rightful spot as a real, living person. It's your turn to wear the mask. I'm halfway dressed and walking towards the parking lot before I realize what I'm doing. My hands turn the keys and the ignition. It'll be a long drive, but I know the alternative is impossible. I can't sit and wait and pretend. I can't not know. It's a few hours compared to a lifetime. It's the easiest decision I've ever made. As I'm pulling out of the parking lot, I expect my anxiety to dissipate. It does not. It grows. I realize this is me opening the closet. I'm doing what I know I shouldn't. I'm driving to the point of fear. And I can't stop myself. It's hours into the drive. The interstate is lonely under all the stars. So many stars. They remind me of the tacky white stickers I had stuck to my ceiling as a child. When I was younger, it didn't matter if the stars were fake. I couldn't tell the difference. Growing up in the city, I never saw the real ones. Maybe that's how you know something is fake. Once you see the real thing, you can tell. But what if you never saw the real thing? Would you even know the imitation was fake? My mind lingers in that old bedroom. If anyone were to know, it would be her. I need gas anyway. I pull over and pump some into the tank. I ask the clerk where the phone is. She hands over her cell and smiles. I'm shaken. I don't know why. I step to the back of the store and down my mother's number. It's late, but she's probably awake. It rings once, twice. Voicemail. I wait for the beep. 
I don't know what I'm doing, I confess. I thought maybe you would want to hear my voice again. It's been a long time, I understand, but someone shuffles into the store and greases over to the beer. I tuck in. I suppose I want you to know I'm finally ready. I'm on my way now. But I had a question about something. A voice picks up. Hello? Who's calling so late? Mom, I say. It's me. Huh? Who? I have something I need to ask. Remember that theme park? Do you remember that day we went? There's some sort of clatter on the other end. Voices in the background. I don't think you have the right number. I need to ask. Did I ever leave your sight? Did you lose me? Even for a minute? I'm going to hang up. I have to know, Mom. Please. Am I one of them? Don't call here again. The line clicks. Goes dead. How much do I remember of yesterday? And the day before it? What determines what is stored in memory and what is discarded? How much of my life do I really remember? I pull off the highway and onto an access road paved in dirt. There's nothing, no one out here. A panic resurges in my chest when I see the dilapidated sign announcing the park's lead-in drive. I take a right and make my way down the mud-caked path. Sitting there, in the abandoned lot, looking at the chain-link fence surrounding the park, fighting the urge to pass out. My head swims. I brace my hands against the steering wheel and count my breaths. It doesn't help. I open the door and stick my head out and vomit. The smell of rust floods my nose. I don't want to be here. I would do anything to not be here. I take the flashlight and the revolver out of the glove box and head toward the gated entrance. Everything is covered with moss and graffiti. Make sure the gun is loaded. I push deeper in. I step over cracked concrete and weeds spilling through it. Loose bits of trash scatter in the wind at my feet. An aching loneliness haunts the park. Years of neglect wrinkle every surface. And yet, I feel the eyes watching me more than ever before staggering gaze hides behind the shattered windows and crumbling architecture. Goosebumps cover my skin. In the distance, I see the remains of a dried-out fountain. I remember the center of the park. I'm crossing to the fountain when, out of the corner of my eye, I see something move. I grip the revolver hard enough to leave indentations in my palm. I'm shaking again. I shouldn't be here. I should leave. Crossing the corner where I saw the movement, I'm stricken with an overwhelming feeling of dread. I know what I'm about to see. I know where I'm being led. I come to an alley between two corroded buildings, both of which are too barren to make out their original intention. Empty shelves lie knocked on their sides, bent and dented 
Shards of glass litter the floor. The space-themed paint job in the interior is splotched with decay. Insulation bulges from sodden ceiling panels. In the back of an alley is a door leading to the employees-only building of the park. The wind blows it open, unlocked, waiting. What am I supposed to do? I can't do anything else. I walk through the doorway. I approach the point of fear. The restricted section looks very much like the rest of the park, minus the themed decor. Discolored, cracked concrete and nature assuming its place. Part of it seems to have been a lounge, judging by the rotted wood bar and overturned bar stools. Dangling from one of the two doorways in the room is a metal placard. Most of it is rusted over. I pull it down with ease and wipe off the collected dust. My heart lurches up in my throat. Costuming. I'm here. I am here. Somewhere in the trenches of the room is the answer. The answer to end all questions. My hands are shaking again. I feel dizzy. Out of balance, I grip the doorframe and steady myself. I stagger into the room. A locker room. Most of the lockers are torn open and wrapped in graffiti. It's not long. It's a short room with a hall on the right. An L-shape. The beam of my flashlight stutters as I approach the corner. I hit it once, twice, waiting for the beam to brighten. In the back of the corner, I see it. It's faded and covered in dust, and chunks of it have been chewed away by insects, but there it is. The costume. It lies dead in the back, its head propped against the wall. So you finally came. I approach the suit, one step at a time, gun raised, flashlight trained. That goddamn smile. That goddamn stupid hat. I perch the flashlight in my teeth while I grip the head. I twist. The mechanism unlatches. The head is loose in my hands, ready to be removed. The unveiling. I can hardly breathe. I take off the mask. And that's when everything changes. It's been so long since you've been back. You know you have a home somewhere. But you've never been. A man who isn't you lives there. He's lived there for a long time. Far too long. And now, you know where he lives. You know where you can find your home. You pull the keys from the pockets. You take the gun. The flashlight. 
just in case. The car is easy to find. It's the only one in the lot. The night is bright with stars. It is a nice night. You drive the limit the whole way back. The drive is pleasant. By the time you get to the house, the sun is peeking over the horizon. You open the door, go upstairs. Here's where he sleeps. You know where he sleeps. You tuck yourself into the closet and close the door. He'll be here any time. You've waited so long. You can wait a little longer. Today we featured three dark tales, Midianites, written by Ted Morrissey and told by Addison Peacock, with a score by Nico Vetese. The Starsick, written by Samuel M. Moss and told by Graham Rowett, with a score by Nico Vetese. It's Your Turn to Wear the Mask, written by Mason Morgan, told by Daniel Foytek, with a score by Daniel Foytek. To find out more about today's contributors, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. Our producer is Meg Williams. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jesse Hawk. Our art director and executive producer is Jeanette Andromeda. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights reserved. On the mic with me today is Calliope, one of my two new kittens. What do you think of Halloween, kitty?